Seeking for the help of the Lord, I direct your prayer for attention to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 24, and reading for our text, verse 16. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offence toward God and toward men. Acts six, uh, 24 and verse 16. The Apostle Paul is giving his defence before those that have accused him, before Ananias, before those of the Jews. And in the middle of where he is speaking, uh, when they apprehended him, when he was contending for the resurrection of the dead, we have this verse concerning himself. I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offence toward God and toward men, a conscience that small yet powerful voice within that is bearing witness of whether something is right or whether it is wrong. That is what he aimed at training aimed at making sure that his conscience was without having any guiltiness, any accusations that he dealt wrongly before men or before God. And when we bring this into the middle of his testifying of the resurrection, we would think of what the Apostle said when he wrote to the Corinthians, that great chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, on the resurrection of the dead. And that was because there was those there that said there were, was no resurrection of the dead. And the Apostle gives all the implications of that, that if there was no resurrection of the dead, then was Christ not raised, then our preaching was in vain, our faith was vain. Those that have died, they perished. And that we that preach are actually liars. We're deceivers because we are saying that there is a resurrection from the dead and that Christ is raised from the dead. In actual fact, he hasn't. And so there is many, many implications of denying the resurrection of the dead. But one of them, and one of the arguments he later in that chapter brings forth that uh, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then, well, we can just eat and uh, go about our lives. And uh, what does advantage us if, if we fight with beasts at Ephesus? And whatever we do, it doesn't matter because this life is the only life. There's no judgment. There's no life to come. And so what falls out from the resurrection of the dead is that we are to be then mindful and careful how we live here below. Because how we live is not just going to be extinguished at death. There is the judgment. There is a life to come. We stand before God. You know, if we took it in a practice short-term effect and we think of Jacob, and we think of Jacob deceiving 
his father. And you say, well, Jacob, if you've got no life in literal life to, to follow, you can think, well, you can get away with this. You, you can just deceive your father and that, that'll be the end of the matter. There's no, uh, no implications of that. But we see how very soon the way of transgressors is hard, how he reaps what he has sown. He's deceived by Laban regarding Leah and Rachel, given Leah instead of Rachel. Laban changes his wages ten times. Later on, his sons deceive him concerning Joseph. And we see that God causes him to reap what he sowed with his father. How many times he must have thought and heard his father's voice, Art thou my son Esau, my very son Esau? And Jacob saying, I am, I am. And he knew he was not. And he read that. And so the apostle here is testifying and in verse 15 that we have hope toward God which they themselves, the Jews, also allow that there shall be a resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees uh, believe this. The Sadducees didn't. Both of the just and unjust. And herein, this is the reason why I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offence toward God and toward men. And later on he returns again uh, to the resurrection of the dead. Verse 21, Except it be for this one voice that I cried, standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. And we can truly say that as the Apostle believed this with all his heart, his conscience would not allow him to deny that. But he had to testify it, he had to preach it, even though he was persecuted by it and suffered for it. But I want to bring before you, bring before me this morning, the important aim of having always a good conscience before men and before God. And so uh, to this end, I want firstly to look at a conscience. What is a conscience? And then secondly, a conscience void of offence. And lastly, a point of exercise. Paul says here, I do exercise myself. So firstly, a conscience. It is that inner sense of right and of wrong. And it is something that we all have by nature. It is not something that is given at the new birth. We do have a conscience. And the Apostle Paul, he writes to the Romans, he says to them in the second chapter, and verse 14, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, by, do by nature the things contained in the law, these not having the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, 
the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And he goes on, and again this is looking at the thought of the resurrection. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And so man does have a conscience. All have that by nature. We are created in the image of God and though we have greatly lost that image and especially in communion and fellowship with God, man still is a, a spiritual creature. He is one that, and, and the multitudes of gods in the earth, they show this forth. Man goes after a, a divine being of some sort and corrupted man goes away from a God that is a sovereign God, an eternal God, a God that we have to give an account to. And he likes to have a God that he can make himself, a God that will do what he wants it to do, a God that cannot hear, cannot act, cannot have any power, and that was so demonstrated on top of Mount Carmel by Elijah. Man likes to have... A, a God of some kind. Uh, but the conscience that God gave to man, that still is a witness within. But we will speak according to the light that we have within. Not according to what we don't know, and so those that do not know the word of God or do not know the law, as in this passage here in Romans, uh, they will not act according to what they don't know, but what they do know and what is still written in their hearts, they will act according to that. And this is, and we'll look at this a bit later, uh, especially in re relation to the Apostle Paul, because he testified that always, even when he was unconverted, he always lived with a good conscience. And so with what he had, uh, his conscience not accusing him, he was hailing men and women to prison, thinking that he was doing God's service, thinking that he was doing that pleasing to God. Uh, and so it's very important that our conscience is actually dictated and governed by that which is right and not that which is wrong. So, but under this first heading, I want to notice how the Apostle, he, he so valued having a good conscience and keeping that conscience, not having it like he wrote to uh, Timothy, there were those that were speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared it's with a hot iron. And you know, if, if you get something that, uh, get a piece of meat or so, and it, it's, it's soft in its raw state, it's soft, it's pliable, you get a hot iron on it and, and you sear it. 
you almost cook the uh, part of it or, or uh, with that iron it then makes it hard it's no longer longer soft uh, and, and this is what he was saying those that are continually pushing that conscience down, continually injuring it, continually going against it, that in the end it just is not tender anymore. It doesn't speak anymore. It doesn't give a witness anymore. And so the Apostle says of those things that we should be very careful, like in Romans 13, where he says concerning the laws of the land, that we should be subject to those in authority and for conscience sake. We should not be deliberately going against what we know is the laws of the land. And that takes a lot of things, doesn't it? Really, on the roads, our taxation, claiming benefits, whatever we are doing, the temptation might be to to bend the rules a bit, sign this and say this, is not really quite right. Uh, and the more we do that uh, and are deliberately doing it, then our conscience is slowly being deadened and deadened. And so he, he gives that advice also in, in relation to the laws of the land. Wherefore, he must needs be subject, not only for wrath, not only because we'll be punished for what we do if we do it wrong, but also for conscience' sake. Then when he comes to, to write to uh, the Corinthians, and he seeks to guard the conscience of others, what we do that might then offend another's conscience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he speaks of those that are offering meats to idols. And he says in uh, verse 10, For if any man see thee which hast knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge, and that knowledge is, uh, as he says for, uh, earlier on in that chapter, that the idol is nothing. The idol is nothing at all. And so knowing that, uh, he doesn't mind whether he eats things or or not, it, it, it's the idol is just nothing. Uh, whether we eat or, drink or not, we're no better, we're no worse. But every man has not that knowledge. And so he's saying, well, you be careful what you do, because those that really think perhaps the idol is something, he says, through thy knowledge shall thy weak brother, or one that doesn't understand fully, Perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, 
lest I make my brother to offend. We should be very, very careful that we don't make someone do something that their conscience is saying to them, it is wrong, I, I shouldn't do it, I, I don't want to feel it's wrong. And you say, no, of course it's not wrong. Oh, and you can prove from the scriptures and you go through the word of God, but they still feel uncomfortable. They still don't want to do it. And you say, yeah, but you've got to do it because I can prove and it, it, it is not no harm at all. The apostle says, no. Your brethren, that while they cannot see, you are forcing them to tread underfoot their conscience. You're forcing them to go against what inwardly they are saying is wrong. And whether it is right or wrong, whatever, is not the issue here. The issue is making someone go against their conscience. And he takes this up again in chapter 10, later on in the same letter. And so he's speaking about things uh, sold in, in the shambles, sold in the markets, and he says, whatsoever is sold in the shambles that eat, asking no question for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that, bid, that believe not bid you to a feast and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you this, is offered in sacrifice unto idols. He gives this advice, Eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own. You could say, well, I, I, I don't mind. It's only an idol. I'm, I, I can eat it without causing my conscience offence. But the person that showed it to you, the person that's told it to you, so he says in verse 29, Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? If I, For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that for which I give thanks. He sums it up, Wherefore, whether ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offence, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. And in another place he speaks, if uh, meat cause to offend, that he would rather uh, not eat of those things. And so... It comes in several passages and the, uh, the whole teaching is that the, the apostle wants to maintain a tender conscience in himself and in others. We think of how the conscience was used and our Lord used it when the Jews brought before him a woman taken in adultery in the very act they said. And they said, now Moses in the law, he commands that such a one should be stoned. But what sayest thou? And the Lord at first didn't answer them. He just wrote on the ground. Then he 
said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Then he continued just writing on the ground. We don't know, we're not told what he was writing upon the ground. But we are told that they began to go out one by one, beginning at the eldest to the youngest. And the reason why they went out, we are told that they were being convicted in their own consciences. As the Lord was silent and as they stood there, they were thinking those words the Lord has said. He that is without sin among you. They knew the law and they knew that they had sinned as well that they had done maybe the same things, guilty of the same things. And conscience did it work. Conscience calls them to go out. Hath no man, the Lord said to the woman, condemned thee? No, no man, Lord, no man. Everyone's conscience had done its work. And this is the important thing, that we have a tender conscience. Conscience just a tender conscience, that's not saving. But God has given us a conscience and is a vital part of being a Christian and walking in the fear of the Lord. And that is why the Apostle speaks in this way. So may we know that we've got a conscience, may we attend a conscience, the Lord deliver us from doing anything that does stamp on it and where a little voice is telling us you should be doing this, you should not be doing that. When he's bearing witness to us, perhaps what we have falsely said or falsely done or even a false impression, sometimes we can lie and deceive and not in actual words, but actually give the appearance. Now we know sometimes people will say that they, they want to have security on their, their homes or whatever, so they put up a dummy security camera. They don't want the expense or to actually have a full setup that costs thousands, but they'll just get something for 20 or 30 pounds and stick it on the, on the house or whatever, so the burglars will see it and they'll think, oh, there's a camera there. But though it's not being voiced, it is actually deceit. It's making out there is something there that is not. And many times I've been tempted to, to do something like that. But each time I felt, no, that really, it really is lying. It really is deceitful. You're making out something is one thing when actually... It is not. And it is this principle in, in all things to be very careful that we don't slowly get more and more hardened. And things that once we recoiled against and once our conscience would speak of, it no more does it. So the first point here is the conscience and the need for that conscience to speak, to do its work, and to be tender. And in looking at then our second point, which is a conscience void of offence, and I want to begin in this second point 
with the importance of it being rightly directed and rightly guided. So a conscience void of offence. The Apostle in chapter 23 of Acts, the chapter before our text, that chapter begins in verse 1, And Paul earnestly beholding the council said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now the high priest commanded him to be smitten on his mouth for that, as if what he was saying was a terrible thing. Of course he couldn't have done that. But I believe it was right. All what he did, hailing men and women to prison, all that he'd uh, done, he had done with his conscience bearing witness that it was right. It wasn't condemning him at all. When we think of those that crucified our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, our Lord said of them, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. I think what the Lord said was true. They knew they were crucifying the Lord, but they were crucifying him as the deceiver, as one of whom they really felt was, was blaspheming and thought that they were then doing God's service in what they were. And yet, really, with all the miracles that the Lord had done, they were without excuse. But the Apostle Paul was in this, in this situation as well. And so when he writes to Timothy, his second epistle, verse 3, the first chapter, he says, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee my prayers night and day. And so he, he is testifying this tender conscience that he'd had, he, he'd always had it. And when it comes then to when he was converted, when he was saved, when the Lord met with him, when the Lord revealed himself to him, then that same tender conscience was of great value uh, and great blessing then because it was being directed in a right way, instructed by the word of God. You and I need our conscience instructed by the word of God. We need not just a conscience, but we need a good conscience. When uh, Paul writes to Timothy, his first epistle, and he says in Verse 5, the first chapter, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling. And he, he makes this point again in verse 19 of the same uh, chapter, and he charges Timothy, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith 
have made shipwreck. And he points to Hymenius and Alexander as examples that have been put out of the church because of this. Faith and a good conscience, they, they go together having the true faith of God. How vital to have those things uh, joined together. When the Apostle writes to, uh, to Titus, he writes again of the, the, the similar instruction unto all, unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. And so it is a vital thing. If we are to live honestly, we're to live not deceitfully, uh, to live not with a guilty conscience, but with a pure and a clean conscience, that we are not hiding things from man, we're not hiding things from God. When we know the gospel, we are not deceiving man. You know, the faithful prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they, they spoke the truth. The watchmen, they had to speak and clear themselves of the blood of all men. And their conscience had to be very clear in this. Paul said that he was clear of the blood of all men. I've not uh, shunned to declare the whole counsel of God. And so if we are to have a conscience void of offence when we especially in the ministry, but really all of the Lord's dear people, they are to speak faithfully and truthfully with those around us. A believing husband with an unbelieving wife, how does your conscience bear as to what you said to her or the other way around? A believing wife to an unbelieving husband, have you been faithful and clear and your conscience clear as we before God, before the judgment that I have actually set forth the truth? Sometimes it can be quite a trial when we have a, a neighbour uh, perhaps ill and at death's door. We've spoken unto them the things of the Lord. Have we been faithful? Have we been clear? Have we really told them the truth? And it is a vital thing that we have a conscience in those things that is void of offence. It does not have anything that will turn round and accuse us. I just mentioned here, we sung the last hymn in the last verse, the hymn we just sung, if conscience accuse us as oft times it may. And that's a good thing when our conscience does accuse us, when it does bear a true witness, and when we listen to it, and when we fall under it, and when we change what we are doing, when we learn from it, and don't just say, well, it doesn't matter at all. No, the Lord will pardon me, the Lord will forgive me. But the conscience is to be 
listen to and in the hymn it reminds us there's forgiveness and pardon through our Lord Jesus Christ for those sins as well. It's a reminder that to uh, do those things which conscience accuses us is wrong, we need pardon, we need forgiveness and if our conscience is bearing witness this morning of things we need to seek the Lord for repentance to not continue to do them and for forgiveness that we be forgiven for doing those things that inwardly that still small voice is bearing witness to the word of God you've not really told the truth here you're being a bit deceitful here you're hiding things here you're not really laying the, 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 the true matter. Now often we can perhaps not want to do something or not want to go somewhere. We've had an invite or we don't want to go and we, we give some other reason, not the real reason. Sometimes that is justified, it is right. But other times we get caught out because if we give one reason and that's easy to overcome, then suddenly we've got to give the real reason why. And uh, we, we need to have that our conscience is, is clear in that. But what a necessity for us as well to truly know the gospel. We bless the Lord for his beloved son, for him being sent into the world, taking flesh as our flesh, and to living a perfect life. You think of our Lord Jesus Christ never in all the time from his birth to his death ever said or did anything that his conscience bore witness was wrong. In all his dealings with men, in all his testimony of his Father, in all that he did before God, everything, was perfect, no sin, no deceit, perfect, spotless righteousness. Now, no Lord's dear people in part have it when, uh, as it is, they're blessed with the grace of God. It was said by our Lord of Nathaniel as he was coming to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile, that is, in whom is no deceit and craftiness and pretense. He is what he appears to be. He is exactly what he is, as, as he is saying. And may we be like that. Israelites, truly God's people, with, with no guile, no subtlety, no deceit the most solemn, solemn testimony against a man when he goes about seeking to walk in lies and subtlety and craftiness is a most solemn witness against that man, against that person. But to know the gospel, to know not only the Lord Jesus Christ as the spotless and pure Lamb of God, but that he then laid down his life for us, for sinners, to suffer in our place, to suffer for those sins that we do, that we commit, and then to rise again 
that resurrection of what Paul bore the witness of, this sacrifice was accepted. Accepted of God. God who sees and knows the secrets of all men. He bore testimony to the spotless, pure humanity, the purity of the God-man, our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And that the sacrifice he offered was accepted and that the sins of his people were put away, blotted out. The facts of the redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ are to be what guides us in all that we do. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, that sitteth on the right hand of the throne of God on high. It's a blessed thing if our sense of right or wrong, our conscience is governed by what happened at Calvary. You think of that day of Pentecost when Peter preached and he charged home to those present that they had taken and by wicked hands crucified and slain the Lord Jesus Christ who had been delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. We read this, they were pricked in their hearts. They were pricked in their hearts. They fell under it. They were convinced of their sin. They realised what they had done. In one sense, the Apostle Paul, sometimes I felt that maybe he did have those pricks of conscience who said on the Damascus road that it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Pricks of conscience. Quite possible that, and I believe it is often so with God's people, as the Lord begins to open their eyes, that they have doubts of their unbelief, they have doubts of what they maintain perhaps for years as rebellion and resistance against the Lord. Perhaps it is true. Perhaps Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. You think of those thoughts that Paul could have had and thinking of Stephen's testimony as his clothes were laid at his feet as uh, the men that were stoning him, laying their clothes at young man's feet, saw. He'd witnessed, he'd heard what Stephen had said. And the Lord uses these things sometimes to give those pricks of conscience before it's clearly shown and clearly revealed the truth to a sinner's heart. Again, what a blessing to have a tender conscience and one that does not accuse us. So a conscience void of offence. The Apostle says here, not just before God, but before God and men. So if we were selling a car or selling a house and we knew that it had got defects, we knew that there was great expense that we are going to have to pay on it, we thought, well... They'll never find it out in the test drive. Just let them drive it. We'll get good money for that car. But what about conscience? Would we like that done to us? Could we really do that? No, it will govern what we do before men. It'll bear 
a, a true witness. Our motives and what we actually do. A conscience void of offence. Well, I want to then look lastly at a point of exercise. Now, what is meant by exercise is to train, to practice, or to work at, to keep a work at. And we're used to hearing, well, the Navy is doing exercises in, in, in the sea. We might say that the, the firemen are doing exercises. And what we're doing, meaning they're, they're practising. They're going over and over their drill and what they're doing so that they, they get it right. And we have in the Word of God many times that an exercise is spoken of and, and in, in different ways. We have it in Hebrews 12 where the Apostle brings an exercise when we're under chastening. And he says in verse 11, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous, Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So the Lord's chastening hand is upon us and instead of just brushing it off and saying it's just nothing, we're searching the word, we're searching our motives, we're making a matter of prayer, we're seeking for grace to find out why the Lord's hand is against us and to stop doing those things, to learn from it, to bow before God, to be humbled, it may be, we find under that chastening a rebellion to God and a rebellion against him. And so our exercise is, Lord, uh, thy word uh, bids us to humble ourselves under the, my, thy mighty hand, but I feel such pride and so different than being humbled and and he causes many errands to the throne of grace and much cries and comparing what we should be with what we are and what is going on in our hearts. Uh, and that is the exercise. The opposite of that would just be saying, well, doesn't matter. I just realise the hand of the Lord is against me. And there's not a thought about it. No searching of our ways, our words at all. No thought of how we could remedy things or make things right or profit from that chastening, correcting hand. Another way where we can be exercised is where the Lord brings us into real concern for our souls. And then there's that real desire that we might know that we are truly called of God. And there's a searching of all of our ways and a looking unto the Lord and searching the scriptures as to looking for the word of God, looking for the way of salvation, seeking to be saved. When I was brought under conviction of sin, then that was one of the great drawings to the word, to the preaching of the word, longing for that word to be blessed and to be a means of instruction and to teach me of the Lord Jesus Christ, teach me of the way of salvation. And so it's a good thing we've known of exercise in that way. Peter, he writes of those, and, and it's on the other side, 
And he says, those that have hearts and they've exercised them with covetous practices, eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. And that's a solemn thing to get into thought patterns that are habitual, they're sinful, they're wrong, and they exercise us so that our hearts are all the time going after sinful and wrong things. The opposite of that would be to exercise unto godliness, like David, who even in the night season prevented the night watches, that he might meditate upon thy word and think upon the things of God. Apostle Paul, writing to the Philippians, spoke of those things that should be thought of. Think of these things. And it is what our hearts are exercised with. We're used to exercising our bodies and the muscles and uh, your limbs that are exercised, they get stronger. Well, our minds as well, they can get exercised. You think of learning something like a piano and or a piece of music. Those of you who know play music and you're doing exercises. The scales up and down or, or you're doing things so that your fingers will know automatically how to go in that pattern, that chord, or those uh, those scales. They'll, they'll do it automatically because it's been done again and again and again. And we need to be careful of how our minds are exercised, what we are strengthening by doing something again and again. If it's sinful, it is wrong. We are reinforcing those sins and those thought patterns and those ways uh, again and again. So a point of exercise here, Paul says that he is exercising himself to have always a conscience void of offence. All the time he is making sure that where that conscience speaks, he listens to it, that he doesn't walk in a way deliberately and then conscience later says, you shouldn't have done that, I bore witness, I gave a still small voice and you just brushed me off and now the conscience, that same conscience says you've done wrong, you shouldn't have done that, whether it be before man or whether it be before God. And so this is what Paul is exercised with. wonder how we would come up here day by day do we all the time measure all we say and think and do before man and before God? Are we doing everything? And our conscience, which is instructed by the word of God, we know what the truth is and we are seeking to walk in a way that our conscience is not accusing us, it's void, it's empty of any offence. And the way the Apostle sets this before us, it doesn't just happen. You know, in all the things, the things of God, the pathway of the people of God is not an easy, smooth path. As sinners, we are called to fight the good fight of faith and lay hold upon the hope set before us. We caused to run the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. 
We're called to resist the devil with the promise that he shall flee from us. No true religion and the blessings of God, they are not easy got at. Let us therefore labour to enter into rest. And sometimes we can deceive ourselves. We can think, well, we want just an easy, smooth path. We want, we want heaven, but we, we, we don't want to have to go through this world resisting and examining all what we think and say and do and being often found guilty and often have to come before the Lord and plead guilty and ask forgiveness and pardon. And where the conscience does bear witness, then that is the way of the cleansing of it, isn't it? Confessing our sin, forsaking our sins, seeking grace that the Lord will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's another last thought I'll bring before you, and that is where the conscience is exercised and is clear before God. Then when we come like the Apostle Paul here, in persecution, or like our Lord had, they accused him of by the prince of devils, casting out devils. They said that he was a blasphemer, a deceiver. But his conscience bore witness that what he had said was true. And Paul here, however much they accused him, what a blessed thing it is when we have a clear conscience and we know what the truth is, and we've said that truth, if we are then persecuted for it, if we are then attacked for it, to have that sweet witness within that what we have walked and the way that we have walked is a right way. Peter, he says in his first epistle, in chapter 2, verse 19, For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Maybe it is this morning. There's some of you are suffering. You've lost things, lost advantages. Uh, evil spoken of things have gone against you because you've acted according to your conscience it cost you something we think of the next chapter verse 15 chapter 3 1 Peter but sanctify, or if ye suffer for righteousness sake happy are ye be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing 
than for evil doing. And he brings it straight to our Lord Jesus Christ. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. When we think of, in Daniel's day, the three Hebrew children, they could not in conscience bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. They were thrown into the burning fiery furnace for it. The Lord appeared for them and delivered them, but they said that they would not bow down to his idol. The Lord was able to to deliver them if it pleased him. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, we will not bow down nor serve thy gods. And the Lord blessed and honoured them. We think of Daniel, when he knew that the writing was signed, that he should not pray to any other god, any other but the king, for thirty days. He still did so. Clear conscience. It's a blessed thing when we come into times of persecution, when we come, when men against us, when there is that temptation, well, it won't matter just to let it go this time. The fear of man bringeth a snare, but it's better to have a clear conscience. You think of what is said about baptism. Baptism is not a putting away of the pollutions of the flesh. But it is that we might have the answer of a good conscience before God. And if your conscience is telling you, I should be baptised, the Lord's blessed me. He's blessed me with faith. He's blessed me with his grace. He's bid me live. And the word of God says that he that believeth and is baptised shall be saved not baptised as a condition of being saved, but as an evidence of love. The love of Christ constraineth us, an evidence of obedience. And if conscience bears witness that this is the path you should go, don't go against that conscience. So if conscience void of offence, may we have it, uh, in, in this matter, and then being baptised in his name as a believer upon profession of faith, go on your way, having the answer of a good conscience. The apostle here, herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offence toward God and toward men. May we make this our prayer, that we might have this exercise, that we might have a tender conscience. The Lord will bless this word to us. Amen.